Sunday, March the 26th, 2007, in the city of Belfast, a remarkable event took place, and a scene that few would ever have thought imaginable. Dr. Ian Paisley, the veteran unionist leader in Northern Ireland, a man who once said, I will never sit down with Jerry Adams. He'd sit with anyone. He'd sit down with the devil. In fact, Adam does sit down with the devil. Did just that. He sat down side by side with Jerry Adams, the leader of Sinn Féin, the militant Republican movement that had murdered and maimed opponents to announce that they had reached an agreement to share power on May the 8th in a devolved Northern Ireland government. Even Dr. Paisley himself could scarcely believe what he was doing. As he said, if anybody had told me a few years ago that I would be doing this, I would have been unbelieving. The Guardian newspaper reported, the accord was hailed in London and Dublin as the defining moment in ten years of a protracted peace process. Now, almost 2,000 years ago, another defining moment took place in another city, the city of Caesarea, the provincial capital of the Roman province of Judea. And again, it focused on two key men. One, a Jew, who was a leader in the Church of Jesus Christ, and the other, a Gentile, who was a leader in the Roman army occupying his nation. We don't have any newspaper reports of the event, but we do have an account of what happened in the New Testament book of Acts, written by a man named Luke. We've been studying it throughout this year under the title, The Spreading Flame. For the book describes how the message of Jesus, called the Gospel or Good News, spread through his followers when the Holy Spirit of God came upon them like tongues of fire on the Jewish day of Pentecost. And the commission of the risen Lord Jesus to them was clear. It's our verse for the year. That you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And following that, over the next few years, the flame had begun to spread outwards. But only so far, it had reached into Judea and Samaria, but not much further except through occasional individuals. The problem was, there was a great firewall that prevented its further spread. One that was centuries old, the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. But the Holy Spirit was about to consume the firewall. God was about to smash the barrier down. And it was the turning point in history. The defining moment. Which Luke describes in great detail and repeats the information several times. So we get it clear. Not only here in Acts 10, but again in Acts 11 we'll see. And later on in Acts 15. So we'll help now to turn to your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. And it's a long chapter that Ian read so well for us from the New Living Translation. And you'll find it on page 1103. So will you turn to that? Help to have a Bible. If you don't have one, just reach over and grab one from someone else or from the pew in front of you. Let's look in more detail about this event. For it is no exaggeration, listen carefully, it is no exaggeration to say that because of this 
seminal meeting between these two men that we and every other church throughout the world exist today. Because this meeting took place, Charlotte Chapel exists. And you are here this evening. It's that important. The American James Montgomery Boyce comments, Acts 10 is of crucial importance for the way in which Christianity has become not a Jewish religion, but a world religion. And what I want to begin by doing is just looking at the two characters in the story. Their names are Cornelius and Peter. And it appears that a Roman soldier and a Jewish fisherman have very little in common. But as Luke describes the story, notice first of all something you may have missed. They do have something in common. One particular thing that Luke picks upon as he tells us each of their stories. Luke highlights a particular fact. Here we have two men who are praying. Two men who are praying. Each of them is speaking to God in prayer. A vertical relationship. As the story unfolds, we discover that the God they are speaking to is going to bring them together so that they speak to each other. Something that each of them would have regarded before this as unthinkable or literally unspeakable. So let's look at the first man that Luke introduces to us whom we can describe as Cornelius, the sincere seeker. Cornelius, the sincere seeker. Cornelius, we're told, is a centurion. A centurion was a non-commissioned officer, roughly equivalent to a captain or sergeant major in the Roman army, a man who had worked his way up through the ranks and was now responsible for some soldiers. Technically a hundred, but it could be as many as six hundred within a Roman legion. However, the point that Luke emphasizes about this man Cornelius is not his military skills or his position of responsibility, but his character and piety. Look what he says in verse 2. He, Cornelius, and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. He's what we might call a sincere seeker. Someone who was dissatisfied with the old gods of the Roman Empire and had been attracted to the simple faith and the worship of the one God of the Jewish faith. Now, how far that search had taken him, he's not certain. But he was certainly not a fully-fledged proselyte. That is, he had not become circumcised and embraced the Jewish faith. Let me pause a moment and say, I believe there are many people around today who are like Cornelius. People who try to live by a moral code to teach their families to do what they believe is right and wrong, who give generously when charitable appeals are made to others in need. Some of them follow a particular religion. I would guess that the piety of your average Muslim often exceeds that of the average British person, the 70% of people who still classify themselves in the last census as Christians. Others have no formal faith. Yet they try to live by some kind of moral code. And behind it all, there is placed within them, in fact, by God, a God-given search for truth and reality. Ecclesiastes says, God has placed eternity in our hearts, yet we can't find the answer that we're looking for. 
And you find it in the most unexpected places. Let me quote something I've quoted before, but it's such a remarkable quote, it's worth hearing again. Uh, the Canadian writer Douglas Coupland, uh, who popularized the term Generation X. It, his first book was called Generation X. I don't think he invented the term. It was named after a pop group, but we won't go there at the moment. Uh, he, he was kind of an early postmodern prophet. Uh, he, he wrote a later book, which is well worth reading. It's called Life After God. And in it, he makes a very surprising confession. Listen carefully to what he says. Now, here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you're in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God. That I'm sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me to give, because I no longer seem capable of giving. To help me to be kind, as I no longer seem capable of kindness. To help me to love, as I seem beyond being able to love. I need God. So, how will a Douglas Coupland or a Cornelius find God? Only if God directs him to his chosen way, in which he has chosen to make himself fully known. So, back to the story of Cornelius. Here's Cornelius, he's praying. I don't know what time you pray. Perhaps you pray before you go to bed. I hope you pray when you get up in the morning. Cornelius prays at three o'clock in the afternoon. Three o'clock in the afternoon was the time of sacrifice in the Jewish temple. And with his Jewish interest, it was the time, as it were, when the priests offered sacrifices and heaven was open to God. And it was the most propitious time to pray because sacrifices had been made for sin and you could get through to God. As he's praying, he sees a vision in which he distinctly, notice the word, sees an angel of God who addresses him by name. Cornelius, hard-bitten soldier though he is, is absolutely petrified. People talk a lot today about seeing angels. Can I say the normal reaction, as I see it in the Bible, if you read almost every account of what, when angels appeared in the Bible, people did not say, wow, oh gosh, oh lovely, let me get my digital camera out. no. When people see angels, they are absolutely petrified by their appearance. And so he asks, what is it, Lord? Verse 4. And he receives a message from God. Notice the message. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with, tells him where it is. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now, notice two important things about this message from God. First of all, piety is a help, but it's not enough. The angel says, God has heard your prayers. He's seen your gifts to the poor. They reflect the heart of a man who is genuinely seeking God. But they are not enough to bring the man salvation. Amazingly, some people have claimed from this story that what it teaches is, is that God saves people from all kinds of backgrounds, so long as they seek him and do good. But the story actually doesn't say that. It says, notice carefully, God sees and hears people from all kinds of backgrounds and religions who are seeking him, but he then directs them to the means by which they can be saved. The American pastor, John MacArthur, comments on Cornelius. His was a seeking heart. He had lived up to the light he had, and God was about to give him more. 
lived up to the light he had, God was about to give him more. He needed more information. Information about Jesus, God's Son. And if you are a sincere seeker, seeking to do what is right, seeking to follow God, God has placed a hunger within your heart. God hears you. He knows you. And he wants to give you more light. So God sends an angel to Cornelius. But notice the second thing from the message Cornelius received. Secondly, an angel is a help, but not enough. I've talked about this before in this series, but it's often struck me, and again, it's worth repeating. It's very interesting, isn't it? Surely the angel could have done a perfectly good job of telling Cornelius about Jesus. Far more effectively... He'd have been a lot more impressive and he'd have been a lot less trouble than sending for Peter and persuading him that he ought to do the job. But although angels have many commissions that they carry out on behalf of God, preaching the gospel is not one of them. That privilege is reserved for human beings. Now, just stop to think about that for a moment. You may well wish that your family member, your friend, your colleague at work that you're praying for, wouldn't it be great if God would send an angel to tell them the truth about Jesus? And I have to tell you, God is not going to send them an angel to tell them about Jesus. He's going to send you to tell them about Jesus. You are doing a job. If you are a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ, if you are his witness, if his spirit is within you, you're under commission... And you have a role to play that angels cannot play because they've no experience of salvation. You have. A human messenger is needed. And that is why Cornelius is told to send for Peter, even though it's going to take an equally dramatic intervention to get him to do the job, as it often does with us, to persuade him to come. Now, as a soldier, Cornelius is used to obeying orders. He's told to send for Peter. What does he do? He calls in two of his servants and another of his soldiers, who's also a devout person who will be sensitive to the commission that he's chosen for. He sends them off to Joppa at once. So we turn from Cornelius, the sincere seeker, to the second person in the story. Let me suggest that we can call him Peter, the prejudiced preacher. Peter, the prejudiced preacher. Uh, Peter was, of course, by birth a Jew. And upbringing a Jew. And Jews, as everyone who was a Jew knew, and everyone who was not a Jew knew, had minimal contact with Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. The Jews knew that they were God's chosen people, holy people. And so they believed that they needed to avoid being polluted by contact with people who didn't belong to God's people. The Gentiles. Of course, they couldn't avoid them, and they found it beneficial to at least trade with them. But there were strict limits... On interaction, no Orthodox Jew would enter the home of a Gentile, invite a Gentile into his home, or share a meal with a Gentile. Now, these rules are not laid down in the Old Testament, the Jewish Scriptures, our Old Testament. In fact, right from the choice of Abraham, the father of Israel, God had promised to bless all nations through him and through his people. Sadly, however, they had not followed that through. They had become infected with the problem of prejudice. And the Bible speaks today, commentary on Acts, John Stott writes, The tragedy was that Israel had twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism, become filled with racial pride and hatred, despised Gentiles as dogs, 
and developed traditions which kept them apart. Now you might think, well, yes, that's the Jews, but Peter is a Christian. He's a follower of Jesus. What I want to say is Peter is prejudiced against Gentiles despite that. He had not changed his attitude and his action to Gentiles. Uh, Notice he was prejudiced against Gentiles despite several things. First of all, despite the teaching of Jesus. It is significant that on one occasion, if you know the Gospel accounts, read it in Matthew, Jesus commended a Roman centurion for his faith. And this is what he said. I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith as this centurion. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Peter had heard that, seen it. He was still prejudiced against Gentiles despite the commission that Jesus had given him and his fellow apostles. At the end of his ministry on earth, before he went to heaven, Jesus gave them what's called the Great Commission. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And as we've seen, this St. Peter had received the promised Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, as Jesus had promised, to enable his followers to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. He was still prejudiced against Gentiles, despite the promise of Jesus. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And he was still prejudiced against Gentiles, despite his sermons. The message of Jesus he'd preached. You remember, back in the beginning of the series, he preached on the day of Pentecost to the crowd there. What did he said? He said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Acts 2, 21. And he concluded his sermon by saying, the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call, Acts 2, 39. Now, yes, some who were a bit closer to home had responded to the gospel and received the Spirit when Peter had recently been to Samaria. But it was one thing to preach to people who at least had some adherence to the Jewish faith, however flawed like the Samaritans. It was quite another to preach to Gentiles who had little or none. And that's why up to this point, Peter and his fellow apostles had not ventured beyond the borders of Judea and Samaria or beyond Jews and God's fearers. But you see, that wasn't God's plan at all. It's a strange thing, it's worth pausing to think about how many things we know as Christians that we even give verbal assent to, but in practice we do nothing about. It's a great danger for preachers, you know, we say, do this, and they think, am I going to do it this week? I have to be honest, sometimes no. And I kind of feel challenged about it, and I hope you do too. But God changes our thinking. He changes Peter. But how is he to bring about this change? Well, he's going to bring it about by sending the servants of a Roman centurion to the house where Peter, the leader of the Jerusalem church, was staying to a house in Joppa. So, here's how God brings things together in his wonderful timing. The messengers from Cornelius have set out on the journey. Next day, they're approaching the city. It's about 30 miles away. But if they ask for Peter they're unlikely to get beyond the threshold of the door, let alone persuade him to accompany them to their master's home. So, what will change Peter's mind? 
What will change your mind? You know how God most often changes people's minds? He changes people's minds through prayer. Strange, isn't it? We think prayer is about us persuading God to do what we want him to do. In fact, prayer is about God changing us so that we do what God wants to do. And we see this in what follows as Peter's mind is changed. Notice the change. That noon, the very time in which the party from Cornelius are heading into the city of Joppa, Peter goes up on the roof of the house to pray. You know, of course, it wasn't a pointy roof. It was a flat one with with the stairway up the side. We lived in one in Pakistan for several years. And it's a good place to go. And probably there were breezes from the sea. It's quite a cool place. And he's waiting for his lunch. The food is being prepared. And we read, as he's on the roof there, he falls into a trance in which he sees what seems to be a large sheet let down from heaven. His mind is changed, first of all, through the vision. He sees this vision of a sheet. Some people have suggested it was prompted by some kind of awning that he was sitting under, or maybe he was looking out to sea and saw the sail of a ship, and it kind of triggered his mental impulses. Whatever the case, it is a God-given vision in which he sees that the sheet contains all sorts of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Verse 12. Now, Peter has recently spoken God's word, we saw this morning, to a paralyzed man and to a dead girl. In both cases, he said, get up, this is what God wants you to do. And God says the same thing to Peter. He says, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And Peter goes, no way. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. He addresses the speaker as Lord. It can just mean sir, but I think it probably does mean Lord here. Recognizing the voice of God, but he's been challenged to do something that God's law said he shouldn't do. Such a thing is repugnant to him. The law of Moses specified that certain animals, you can read this in the book of Leviticus, uh, when you go home this evening, before you go to bed, uh, that certain animals were clean and others unclean. Even to, make, uh, even to mix them, let alone eat them, is abhorrent. These were specific food laws. By the way, interesting, I got a good example of this recently. Our fellowship group had a, an Indian takeaway, and we went to the one in Morningside that we used to go to when the manse was there. And I know the guy a little bit, I've spoken to him, and we got talking uh, while I was waiting for the food to be prepared. And uh, he said to me... Uh, you work for the church, don't you? So I said, yes, that's correct. He said, uh, are you an administrator? So I said, no, I'm a kind of imam, a teacher. And he said, good, I've got a question. He said, I've been reading the Bible. And he brought this Bible out from under the takeaway counter. Listen, he really caught me on the hop here, and you can tell me what I should have said afterwards. And uh, it never happened to me before. It was a James Moffat version of the Bible, and he got inserts in it, so... He turned to Leviticus and he said, look what it says here. It says, these animals are unclean. Now the Quran says these animals are unclean as well. So how can you Christians eat them? Has God changed his mind? Ooh, that's a tricky question when you're waiting for a child. Uh, and in, <laughs> in the takeaway. Uh, uh, these kind of, that's just by the way, just to get you thinking about what you would have said to him. And if you want to know what I said, I'll tell you later. But it wasn't a very good answer, I can tell you that. I'm thinking of going back with something else, but anyway. Uh, But you can see the kind of abhorrence in in those kind of cultures. But the voice from heaven, the Lord answers, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. 
And then the vision is repeated three times over for emphasis. God always does things three times once you get the point, all right? Then the sheet is pulled up to heaven. What does it mean? Peter wakes up and he thinks, what is God saying? As he struggles to understand, the men from Cornelius arrive at the gate of the house of Simon and call out and say, is there a Simon Peter who lives here? Now, Peter doesn't know about this. He's still engrossed in his thoughts about the vision when he is further persuaded to change his mind through the voice of the Spirit. This is the second way that God changes his mind and changes our minds. Simon, he says, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter goes downstairs from the roof, and he says to the men, I'm the one you're looking for, why have you come? It is almost humorous, is it not? Here's Peter, the spirit-filled apostle, asking two Gentiles, a soldier and two servants, hey guys, you know what's going on here? Can you tell me what's happening? Finally, his mind is changed through the visitors from Cornelius when they explain what has happened to their master Cornelius. The men replied, verse 22, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who was respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come into his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Peter understands, though not yet, the full implications. His change of mind, our change of mind, if it is genuine, must always lead to a change of behaviour. Peter's behaviour is changed. Then Peter invited the men into their house to be his guests. That would have been unthinkable an hour before, when he went up on the roof. He'd have left them standing in the street. And the next day they set out, a party of ten people. We learn in Acts 11 that Peter took six other believers with him along with the three from Cornelius, they set out back to Caesarea. And when they arrive at the home of the centurion, they find he's gathered all his family and friends to hear what Peter is going to say. It's a momentous event, a momentous meeting. John MacArthur comments helpfully again. Two worlds were about to collide as seven devout Orthodox Jews were about to meet a household of eager Gentiles a milestone in the history of the Christian church has been reached. Now, as with the illustration with which I began, and we're drawing towards a close now, but stay with me, both of the main characters in the story, Cornelius and Peter, need to change their position if they're to come together. What I want to suggest to you is, in this story, there are two conversions, radical changes. The first is the conversion of Peter. Never as a preacher had a more respectful host For Cornelius falls at his feet in worship. But, and every preacher needs to hear this, especially some of them on the television, he's not a celebrity, but a servant. As he says to Cornelius, stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. And never has a preacher had a more receptive audience. Notice how he begins. He admits that he was wrong. This is what he says. You are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Peter has been converted, changed in his thinking. The vision he saw was not primarily about the kinds of food that God says he should accept. 
but about the kinds of people that God says he should accept. He now realizes that Jews and Gentiles are alike in the eyes of God. And this is reinforced when Cornelius explains what has happened to him and concludes by saying, so I sent for you immediately. It was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Tell us the gospel. Then Peter responds by confessing he was wrong about his previous attitude to Gentiles and that God has no favorites. Don't know if you've got a favorite verse. Most, a lot of Christians, it's very popular in America, have you got a life verse, you know? Never met anyone, but a church, here's a good life verse for any Gentiles, all right? I now realize it is true that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. But while God accepts such people, he saves them through faith in his son, Jesus. He doesn't stop there and say, right, I've just realized that God accepts all people who do fear him and do what is right. Nice to meet you. We're on the same page here. No, he goes on to preach the gospel to Cornelius and his fellow Gentiles. And he concludes by saying, all the prophets testify about him, Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 43. And as he speaks and offers forgiveness to all who believe in Jesus, those who gather their hearts, they respond in faith. We often get these things all sort of neatly portioned. You know, you do this, you do this, then you pray, and then you receive the Holy Spirit. Here's a case where as the preacher is preaching, would that it would happen today, the Holy Spirit falls upon the hearers, comes upon them. And they began to speak in tongues and praise God, just as the apostles themselves had done on the day of Pentecost. So people realizes, Peter realizes not only that Gentiles can become Christians, but more radically, Gentiles can become Christians without becoming Jews. That's why he says, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They receive the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Notice it all goes together. Repentance, faith, receiving the Holy Spirit, baptizing the Spirit, baptized in water. It's all one package. We often, perhaps for good reasons, separate what God has joined together, but they all belong as part and parcel of the same thing. Now, as you stop at this point, you may think, well, this is pretty passe, you know. But it was incredibly controversial when it first happened. And of supreme importance, not least to us. Up until now, let me repeat, it was largely Jews and Jewish converts who had come to faith in Christ plus the Samaritans. But now it was clear that God accepted Gentiles and they didn't have to be circumcised or jump through any Jewish legal hoops in order to follow Jesus. And it was because this was so difficult for Jewish Christians that God gave such amazing and unmistakable evidence attested by witnesses. There are seven witnesses, Peter and six other people required in Jewish law to attest. We'll see it next week, God willing, when Rodney speaks on uh, the next chapter. Uh, they'd attest that this is genuinely of God. They're legal witnesses. Only this will convince the church in Jerusalem not to split down the middle between Jews and Gentiles, but to come together. Now, while this may not be a specific issue for us today, I want to say that if we're going to respond to seekers like Cornelius and bring them into our churches, we need to make sure that we are not asking them to adopt a lifestyle and practices that are merely part of our culture rather than the essence of the gospel. Those of us who have worked overseas know what this is like. 
you think you know exactly what a Christian is and what Christian behavior is and what you do in church and everything else and you go to some other country and they're believers in Jesus Christ and they do things completely differently and the first reaction you have if you're like me is what have I come to here? They're all heretics. No, they worship God in different ways. The same God. We need to focus on the essentials, not the peripherals and not the cultural differences between us. You need to think through those issues. It's a good topic to think through. But it will require a radical change, a conversion in our thinking. So Acts 10 describes the conversion of Peter, but more obviously it also describes, of course, the conversion of Cornelius and his associates. We've seen that Cornelius is a sincere seeker. But nonetheless, the seeker needs to hear and respond to the gospel of Christ. Now notice again the message that Peter preaches. His emphasis may differ somewhat when preaching to Jews. Nonetheless, it is the same gospel centered on Jesus, which Peter proclaims to Cornelius and his fellow Gentiles. The focus is on good news of peace with God through Jesus. He begins by saying, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And then he reminds them of all the facts about Jesus. He says they're common knowledge. Everyone knew what had happened in Jerusalem. Beginning with the preparation of John the Baptist, and then he goes to the ministry of Jesus, verse 38, the crucifixion of Jesus, verse 39, the resurrection of Jesus, verses 40 to 41, and concludes with the commission of Jesus, to his followers, to them. And he concludes with the offer of the gospel, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And even as he's speaking, God is working in the hearts of the believers as God does when his word is proclaimed, when the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is proclaimed to others. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard the message. Now, if you are this evening here in Charlotte Chapel and you're a sincere seeker, you still need to hear God's saving, you especially need to hear God's saving plan through his son Jesus. Whatever your race, we've heard about the International Cafe, it's a great example. Thank you to Jack for sharing that and those who are involved in it. Whatever your race, whatever your background, whatever your religious background, your creed, this is good news for you. It's good news for all people. The message that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins in his name still stands, as does the promise of the Holy Spirit to those who respond in faith to that message. So, the seeker needs to hear and respond to the gospel of Christ. But, and I'm almost through, in order for that to happen, someone must be sensitive to God's voice, respond to his call, and go to the Corneliuses of this world and tell them about Jesus. And that someone must be a human being angels cannot apply. Christians, we need to leave our Jerusalem, the security of our own world, and engage with seekers, and tell them about Jesus. So the second thing the seeker needs is an unprejudiced and obedient preacher. And by preacher, I don't mean just someone who stands in a pulpit like this. I mean any Christian who shares the good news of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, God needs you, an unprejudiced person, to obey him and tell people about Jesus. And often they're in the most unlikely places. Maybe the challenges you're going to this week. As you pray and go into this week, as I said at the beginning, I hope you pray when you start the day. As you go into this week, why not say to the Lord, Lord, I'm obedient, I want to be used by you. 
if there's an opportunity for me to speak to someone about you, help me to be ready. Even if it's someone I never thought of as being a potential Christian. I was really challenged by the guy in the Indian restaurant. I was sitting there, you know, discussing Pakistan and where I'd been and stuff like that. Who'd expect that? never happened to me before that a Muslim brings out a Bible from under the counter and starts discussing Levitical law. That's interesting. I wasn't as well prepared as I should have been. Because I never thought of him like that. Well, I thought he's a Muslim, you know, and he's an... Muslims, you know, and I've worked with Muslims. I've lived in an Islamic Republic for years. It's not an easy thing to talk to Muslims. You've got to build bridges. It takes years. It don't normally happen when you're ordering a chicken ticker. You know, be ready for the opportunities. Who knows? The most unexpected person, the least likely person, God has got in line for you to speak to this week. There is a certain irony and the fact that the place Peter left to go to Caesarea to bring God's word to Gentiles was the port of Joppa. If you know the Bible, you'll know it's the place where Jonah left my ship in order to avoid bringing God's word to Gentiles. I want to say to you, you can be like Jonah this evening, but the Jonah route is a very painful route. It will involve you in a lot of pain for God to get you back on track. It may not mean being inside a fish for a few days, but it may be just equally unpleasant. The one that Peter took is the right one, to be open to God's leading. Indeed, the defining moment, which in due time brought the gospel to us, in our nation, here in Scotland, and continues to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to all peoples on earth. I leave you by asking you, are you, am I, are you a Jonah? Or are you a Peter? How will you respond when God calls you by name, even this evening, and says, get up and do what I tell you? That's obedience. Coming to a conclusion, so we're going to sing.